Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Well, uh, I'm glad you're here with us today. Last week, we, uh, we started out a, a brand new series called Co-Mission. And we are mapping out uh, these, this, this four-step path of discipleship that we're all walking together. And this series, as we said last week, this is really foundational to kind of who we are at Generations and how we roll as, as, as a tribe of disciples here. And it's summed up in these four words, to gather, grow, give, and go. Gather, grow, give, and go. And we do it all together. We do it all together. And we also mentioned last week, this isn't just a one-time journey that we're talking about. Get on this journey, finish it, and, you know, mission accomplished. This is a, a lifestyle that we pattern our lives after. And so uh, the big question we're asking through this is what does discipleship look like for modern 21st century followers of Jesus? What is discipleship? How do we be disciples? And that's, it's one of those words that's, you know, it's not a real common word today. It can seem a little vague. And so how do we be disciples? To be a disciple... I'm going to get my little electronics to work here. <laughs> to be a disciple, it's, uh, you know, it's more than just being a, a student. Or it's more than being just a member of like a club or an organization or something like that. Discipleship is about living in such intimate relationship with the master. Intimate relationship with the master that we began to live and think like him. This is an ancient concept. And in the times of Jesus, people, there were disciples. There were a lot of people who were disciples of different things, different people, even uh, both religious and secular, right? Aristotle and Plato had their own disciples, people who would follow them. And so this was a concept that was common for, for ancient folks. It's a little less common for us. But to be a disciple, to follow that master, to, to begin to imit, mimic him, to walk in his dust, mimic what he does, the things that he says, to live in obedience to his instruction, and to live in a reflection of his character. To be more, we would say to be more Jesus-y, right? Because we made that word up. Because English is just not enough. So we make up these words. Engl you know, we want to be more Jesus-y, to walk in his dust and be just like him. Last week, we unpacked what it means to gather as the church. And we saw how gathering is not just about showing up, it's about diving in and really opening ourselves up to authentic, accountable relationships. We use that phrase very intentionally, accountable relationships, diving into these relationships with each other so that we can help each other become more like Jesus. Amen. Diving into these relationships. Now, generations, we've called it in years past, togethering, right? Because we like to coin our own words around here. Togethering, together. And so today, today we're going to look at what this distinctly, i got a lot of ring in here, guys, uh, this distinctly sort of relationship-centered model, this togethering model of discipleship looks like when it comes to the second stepping stone of our path of discipleship, and that is to grow, to grow. Now, when we say grow, we mean grow spiritually, of course, and what we're really after here is growing in your faith. That's the phrase we often use. We grow in our faith. That's what we want to do. We know it's important to God, and so it's important to us. The writer of Hebrews even says, Hebrews eleven six. he says, Without faith, 
it is impossible to please God without faith. So we want to grow in our faith. Now notice what he says. What pleases God? It's our faith, right? Faith. Not, not necessarily doing everything perfectly. Not necessarily being the smartest kid in the room. But faith, which is really just a fancy religious word for trusting God. Trusting God. That is what pleases God. I can, you know, I can attest as a father, that's the thing that pleases me most in my children. That's the thing I desire for them most. It's just to put their trust in me. Trust me enough to actually do what I tell them to do, right? <laughs> trust me. I know what I'm saying. Do it. This is for your own good, right? Trust me enough to, to follow in my footsteps. To, to, that's my desire for my, for my children, for them to be at peace and not to worry about tomorrow. Because they trust in mommy and daddy enough, you know, that we're going we're gonna to handle those big decisions in life. They don't need to worry about that. They can put their trust in us. Trust in us enough to, to learn, right? To learn to do the next thing, to, to grow up and become real adults who can make decisions. But they have to put their trust in us. And so trusting God is important. But here again, when Jesus comes along and he's announcing the kingdom... He disrupts all of our assumptions of what it means to grow in our faith. He disrupts our assumptions. If you're a student in college, for instance, uh, what, is it, what would it mean to grow or, or mature? It would mean to, to learn the material, right? You're going to class, learn the material, get that, get that degree, pass the course, earn those credit hours towards the degree. If you're working at a big company or something like that, to your growth up in that organization, it might mean, you know, rising up in the ranks, getting those promotions, a higher salary, cooler titles, achieving, you know, maybe greater spheres of, of power and leadership, authority. Even in the world of religion, when you think about growing into a, in a religion, we might assume that to mean, uh, you know, that person's really accumulating more knowledge of that religion, more religious facts. Maybe that person is, is, uh, has discovered secret knowledge that's just reserved, you know, the, that enlightenment reserved for the really powerful, the elite, in the inner circles of that religion or something like that. But in the kingdom of God, spiritual growth isn't measured in diplomas or promotions. So how do we know if we're growing in our faith? What's, what's the sign? Well, it turns out the people back in the Bible in Jesus' day uh, were wrestling with this same question. This was a common question for them too. And there was one group of people back then who believed that, well, you can measure your spiritual maturity, your growth, by how strictly you kept to the religious commandments of the law. And so this is what they tried to do to, to, as a sign of their spiritual maturity. These guys were known as the Pharisees. And we dig on the Pharisees a lot, but really these guys were just trying to do the right thing, right? They were just trying to keep the law, keep the, the, all the rules so that, as a sign of their great spiritual maturity. And then there was this, another group back then who measured their growth by how much secret knowledge you achieved. Um, they, were, they were this sect of mystics uh, who believed that the highest knowledge was reserved for a very select few, and they were known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics. They, it's where we get our modern word knowledge from, the Gnostics. And what Jesus, and, and then later the apostles, they came along, what they introduced to the church was this new standard by which to measure one's own spiritual growth. It was totally different. It wasn't about achieving 
perfect law-keeping. It wasn't about achieving secret mystical knowledge. It was something far more relational. Go figure. In a nutshell, it was how we treat one another. Jesus introduces this revolutionary concept as he says over in John chapter 13. He says that the world at large would be able to discern our spiritual maturity, our status as real disciples, even the secular world. Who they don't, maybe they're unchurched, but they would be able to tell that those guys are real disciples over there. They would be able to tell it by our love, our love for one another. And, and right here, Jesus gives... I think just one of the most beautiful mission statements for discipleship, right there. It's kind of all summed up right there, loving each other, loving each other. Later, apostles would, would flesh this out some more in, in a number of ways. Paul told the Galatians church over in chapter 5 of that book that the fruit of a spiritually maturing person would be more and more visible signs of, as he put it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, and all of those are really manifestations of the first one, love. Amen. Right? They're, they're all just ways that love is shown in there. Mel taught a great sermon about the fruit of the Spirit about a year ago. Go back and check that one out. Um, he also tells us, uh, he, he reminded the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, the Corinthian church was this very immature church. He really dogged them hard. These guys had a lot of issues. But they were especially immature. And he reminded them of the preeminence of love for the believer. And he, he reminded them that none of it had much to do with the sign of discipleship. It doesn't have to do with learning more content or achieving deeper mystical experiences. Right? And they were all into, the, they were all into that. Uh, he, and, and he called them immature. Immature. Now, all the apostles in the New Testament, we read their letters, and they all encourage growing in knowledge and to study and to learn, to grow, increase in knowledge and wisdom. It's not that knowledge is a bad thing. We're not anti-intellectual or anything like that. In fact, be, you know, often being anti-intellectual accompanies being anti-loving. And so we're not, not saying that it's not good to, knowledge isn't good, but it's never held up as the primary fruit. It's never held up as the primary fruit of growing, of a growing faith in Christ. The primary fruit of a growing faith in Christ is actually becoming more like Christ. That's the fruit of a growing faith in Christ. You start to act like Christ, his love, because God is love, right? God is love. So it makes sense. The goal of a disciple of Jesus is to become more like the master, to, to look and think and behave and love more like Jesus. That's our goal. So, but here's the trouble. This is not a popular view of discipleship in the 21st century. Uh, in, in, in today's church, if, if you pull 20 modern day evangelical Christians, you know, out of their church's coffee shop, which is where they'll be, uh, and you ask them, what does it mean to grow spiritually, to, to spiritually mature? You'll get a lot of different answers, but sadly, probably few would answer, growing spiritually means becoming more Christ-like. Most will say something. The first thing that'll come to mind is something about doing less sinning, or getting more blessings. 
doing less sinning or getting more blessings. I mean, that, that's usually often the first thing that comes to people's mind about growing, a sign of that I'm growing spiritually. And it, it all boils down to this me spirituality, this sort of me-centered spirituality. And here's the bad news for these folks, is that even if you have successfully conquered every sinful impulse in your body, even if you have conquered every craving, every temptation from chocolate to murder, if you have driven it out, even if you have researched all of the secrets of how to experience unending prosperity and unending healing, if you have absorbed every verse in the Bible and you know it all by heart, front to back, we're told that if it does not overflow from you in the form of the fruit of the Spirit of God, looking more like Jesus in terms of love and grace and peace, then you are not growing in your faith. Paul says it is nothing. It's worth nothing. You're not growing in your faith. You're not maturing. You're you're metastasizing, basically. You're growing something, but it ain't good. Right? Right? You're, You're not fruit growing on the vine. You are rotting in the fridge. Right? That's my Kanye moment for the day. I did, that's as best as I can do. Sorry. When we, get, when we get our spirituality primarily focused on what we can get from God or the things that we're not doing for God out of piety, we actually find ourselves living out a, a deformed version of discipleship. It's, it's a consumer Christianity, and it's all, it's super bad. Which it, and it's when we fail to focus on the highest blessing, the highest blessing of all, which we can seek, which is to know God better. Amen. To know him better is the highest blessing. It's why growing in your faith, if you're growing in your faith, it should make you more loving, more merciful, less judgmental. More generous to the poor and needy, less judgmental of them. Amen? It should make you more selfless, less greedy. And if we get upside down on this, if we consider growth this a, a different thing, we get into this dangerous path of associating all suffering with a lack of faith. And we can even blame those who suffer for their immaturity which sort of makes it awkward when we read the, the, the words of the Apostle James when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The testing of your faith, your faith. Not to mention Paul's claim that he actually glories in his sufferings. How bizarre is that? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, character, hope. And why? Why does he say this? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his spirit. You got to do a whole lot of mental gymnastics to to make these passages fit with a me-focused spirituality, right? Now, yes, God is a God who saves. He is a God who delivers because he is a good father. He's your Abba father, isn't he? He loves you. Uh, But as you grow in your relationship with him, as you grow in that relationship, you'll experience the blessing that is highest above all. That no matter what is happening around you, you experience the greatest blessing of all, which is that pearl of great price, which is knowing him better. 
knowing him intimately, knowing his goodness and his love for you. And as you grow to know him better, you'll grow in your faith. You'll be able to trust him more with your life as you grow to know him better. We put it this way. The better you get to know God, the more you can trust him. The better you get to know God, the more you can trust him. It's all about relationship. Yeah, you can study theology, and it's good. I like to study theology, right? I'm a big nerd about theology and doctrine and all that good stuff, church history. And you can learn about God, and in the end, you can be no closer to God than you'd be friends with George Washington after reading a history book, right? We can know all about him and not be in relationship with him. But Jesus is alive. See, we're not reading about a historical figure. Jesus is alive. He's present with us right now. His spirit lives inside us. And he's closer to us than even possible any human being can be closer to us. God is closer to us. He's a personal God. And if you really want to know, if you really want to grow him in your faith and and grow in in your trust, then we have to get to know him. We can't just get to know about him. We have to get to know him. The writer Oswald Chambers, he said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Hmm. We could sit here and think about that one for a second. He says, but faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God, knowing he is good, whose ways you may not understand at the time. As you, as you grow to know the character of God, that God is truly good, and he loves you, and he will never forsake you. Right. When that becomes real to you, you'll be able to trust him with your life. You'll be able to trust him no matter what comes, right? Amen. And by the way, you'll also learn to live in ways that reflect his character better. Amen? Amen. We don't, we don't, we don't sin less in order to get close to God. By his grace, He allows us to have a relationship with him that actually results in us sinning less. We don't want to get that backwards. Amen. That's a whole, that's a doctrine called sanctification and it's a whole nother sermon. Amen. See, let me just say this. If you have a sin problem, if you have a problem living, if you're living in sin and you just can't stop living in sin or whatever that is, you actually don't have a sin problem. You have a relationship problem. Right. right? If I've broken my arm, there is, a, there is a disconnect. There is something broken. And I need a savior, a physician, to mend what is broken before he just gives me a bunch of aspirin. Right? I, I, I have a relationship problem. I have a disconnect. And so, yeah, that's, that's for free. There you go. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, let's... let's Let's turn over to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. I want to look for a few minutes at a story that Jesus told the crowd. And it illustrates really beautifully this idea. This is a parable, common parable. A lot of of you you long-time Christians have probably heard. Um, And there's two recorded versions of this parable. The other one is in Matthew 7. And in both of them, Jesus is talking not just about hearing his words uh, that he's telling them, but putting them into action. What he's really describing is the difference between a student and a disciple. Someone who just hears the words, is able to pass the test, 
and someone who is living the words, a disciple. Uh, and in, over in Matthew, we're not going to look at it, but just take my word for it. He, he compares uh, that to being a wise person who builds their house on the very good. And, and, uh, that, and they, that house can withstand all the storms and the floods when they come versus this foolish person who builds his house further down the hill on the, look at you, you read your Bible, down, right? So he's kind of like, he's down there on the beach next to the water and he's built his house down there. That was really stupid. And when the rains come, the house floods, it, it fell, falls down with a crash. And a lot of us have heard that version. Now, in both of these versions, uh, Jesus says that both of these guys are like people who have heard the words of Jesus. They're both students of Scripture, okay? So they're both maybe sitting in the congregation. These aren't like two sinners. These are just two people hearing the words of Jesus. They're both students, and they've both built a house, which is, kind of stands for their, their life, represents their life. But check out the detail uh, that Luke adds, which is very important here we go. Chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He says it over in Matthew 2. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they are like. And then look what he says in verse 48. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep, dug down deep. He laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck that house, could not, that, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Do you notice the difference in the story? He either told this parable two different times or, or it was just recorded slightly differently by the two different writers. But here is the interesting twist. There's a few, a few cool things here we find out about these two uh, houses. Next slide. Number one, both houses are actually built on the sand. They're built over sand. But one man dug down deep to connect his house to the rock underneath. Both of these houses have been beautifully built, all right? They're well-constructed. They're an impressive edifice. Plenty of good doctrine. Mm -hmm. On the surface, no difference. I, I was thinking about, you know, all the, the beach houses. You go to Galveston, you see these houses that are just amazing uh, because some of them are just practically right there on the water, right? And they're surrounded by sand. Uh, but, but they're on these amazing wooden pylons that's driven really deep into the sand, down toward the, the bedrock or whatever it is down below. Why? Because sand shifts around, doesn't it? If you just build a house on your sand, it's going to move around like you're in an earthquake all the time. Sand moves, and anything riding on top is just going to shift with it. And some of these buildings down there have survived, you know, decades of, of hurricanes because there is a firm foundation underneath all that sand. And in Jesus' story, both men have to contend with the sand. Both men. Here's a fact. All of us live in the world, don't we? If you're here, you live in the world. We are called to be ambassadors of a great kingdom, living in a fallen kingdom. That's our calling. We are not, we're not called to move back home. 
We don't get saved and get to move back home to our kingdom. We're called to be ambassadors in this world. But we all have to contend with the sand underneath us. You have a job that you go to every morning in the world. Maybe you go to school. You're in high school or college. And you have neighbors. You have to, you have to pay your bills. You have to contend with the same stuff that everybody else in America contends with. We don't, we don't live, you know, in convents or something far out, isolated from everybody. Here's the difference, though. The company you work for may give you a paycheck, but God is your source. Amen. Amen. God is your source. Amen? They're not your source. That company is not your source. Your, your house may be sitting over sand, but that sand better not be your foundation. Right. You are in the world, but not of it. Amen. Our lives better be anchored to something. So we don't have to be at the mercy of this economy because you have a father God who owns every rock, tree, hill, and oil deposit on this planet. He owns it all. And he is your sufficiency. He is your source. Amen? On Christ the solid rock I stand. He is our rock. The Apostle Paul said this over in 1 Corinthians. Next slide. For one can lay any foundation over the one already laid. For no one can lay any foundation over the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We have a God who is utterly unshakable and totally unaffected by circumstances. So, so we would then have to ask, well, what does that mean then? What does it mean to drill down and attach our lives to the rock? How do I, what, what does that actually mean practically speaking? He tells us, this is everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. This is somebody who trusts God enough, even though you can't see the rock down below the sand, this is somebody who puts their faith in God. Their faith is in God. It's not in how, how, how hope the sand doesn't move much today. You anchor your heart to his and you start doing what he says. And you're relentlessly pursuing relationship with him. And when you do that, you know what happens? Is you, you see him come through for you again and again and again. And he comes through and that builds your faith even more. Every time he doesn't leave you forsaken. And he comes through with every storm that hits the side of the house. You just keep falling more in love with him Amen. and trusting him more. Amen? Which brings us to another interesting detail in this parable. Number two, next slide. The storm hits both houses. Do you notice that? Hmm. See, the people of, uh, Jesus was talking to, ancient Galilee there, they understood storms and floods. The, the climate over in Israel is actually a lot like... Texas, or some people say kind of like California, and that it's kind of arid. It's pretty dry, and uh, it'll go a long time before there's rain over there. And when it does, that hard-packed ground of Israel, it doesn't really soak it up, and you get flash floods. So the people Jesus is talking to, they understood floods. They understood that. He's speaking to people who understood the power of floods. Archaeologists have, have dug along the Jordan River there, which would overflow its banks every year back then, and they have unearthed these ancient houses that had to dig down as much as 10 feet to the bedrock below. So these were people who totally understood what Jesus was talking about. Following Christ doesn't mean that you get yourself a storm-free life. But it does mean that we have access to a better foundation. 
And in fact, it's precisely because of their storms that you need the foundation. Otherwise, why worry about that? Being a, a better Christian doesn't always calm the storm, but it does mean you will be standing when it's over. That's what it means. John 16, next slide, says this. I have told you these things, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So friends, the, the rains are going to come. They're gonna, the waters will rise and your stability will be tested. And, and that is when the difference becomes obvious b between a, a casual Sunday morning attender and disciples who are growing in their faith. You find out really quick what, what you're anchored to. Here's aha moment number three. Your storms are not actually the biggest danger you're facing. Your storm is not the biggest problem you have. It's not your biggest worry. You may feel like it when you're going through it, right? In that moment, it's the storm. But the storms you're facing are not your real enemy. For the most part, you notice the storms of life are out of your control, aren't they? You don't get to schedule them into your calendar. I don't get to, you know, pick up my phone. Okay, January 11th's coming. Uh, I'm going to have strife with my wife that week. My kids are going to get sick. Oh, I better not schedule anything else that week, right? My boss is going to call me into the office. Yep. Whew. Glad I planned for that. No, that, that's not the way it works, is it? You don't need to worry because they're a part of life. They're a part of life. But in this parable, notice, it's not because the storm was like extra violent against the second guy or that his house wasn't even strong enough to take it. What was the undoing of the second architect? His house had nothing firm underneath. That's the trouble. It's not the storm. It's the foundation. So we don't need to blame our circumstances if we find ourselves spiritually homeless. We, we don't need to say, oh, it's because of all that stuff that happened to me. Jesus warned us that storms would be a part of life, but he gives us the key for surviving and thriving in the midst of these storms, which is going beyond just hearing his words and, and, and actually doing them. That means getting to know his heart so we can put our trust in him. Get to know his heart. The better you know him, the more you can trust him. If you want to survive these crazy times, and these are, these are nuts. The answer isn't escaping to find a sand-free life that doesn't exist. If you have found a life without sand, it means you are dead and in heaven, right? The answer isn't that. It's digging down, anchoring your life in authentic relationship with the living Christ so that you can represent him well to the world. Any relationship worth having, you got you to gotta spend time. You got to invest in, right? You have to spend time with the person to really know them, to really trust them. And the man or a woman who is depending on their great knowledge about God is like one who builds on sand. They're putting their, their trust in their house, on what they have built, their abilities, their intellect, their skills, maybe even good doctrine. They're putting their trust in that to sustain them when the storm hits. And Jesus says that person is at the mercy of the wind and the waves. 
If we have the prettiest house out there, but have not love, this was the problem Jesus really had with the Pharisees. It wasn't that they did everything right. He even told them one time, you should keep doing that, but you've forgotten the most important thing. They didn't trust in God. Not really. They didn't really trust God. If you look at their fruit, they were looking good. They were obeying all the laws, but they trusted in their own appearance of perfection. They trusted in their own righteousness. All of this righteousness that I'm doing, this is going to get me somewhere with God. That's what they were saying. They trusted in their pretty spotless house rather than admitting their daily need for God's mercy, their daily need for his love. The Scottish writer William Barclay, he said this. Next slide. He said, for the Apostle Paul, faith is not the intellectual acceptance of a body of doctrine. Faith is faith in a person. We've said this before. Faith is faith in a person. It's always faith in a person. We don't put our faith in a philosophy. We don't put our faith in a religion or a church or anything like that. We put our faith in a person whose name is Jesus Christ. That is our faith. It's not an intellectual thing or a hypothetical thing or a philosophical thing. It is relational. Faith is relational. It's personal. Growing in faith is a lot less like attending a class and it's a lot more like falling in love. That's what growing in your faith is like. So, what can we take home from all of this? Let's make this super practical here. We've talked about what faith is um, and what it looks like when we're doing it right and growing in maturity. So, how do we get there? there there's some ways that God uses to grow our faith. I want to offer you four things today. Number one, one of the most powerful catalysts for growing in your relationship with God is growing in divine relationships with other believers. Divine relationships with other believers. He puts us together on purpose. See, we're all in this church for a reason. We're all together to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, hold each other accountable, to comfort one another. As we said last week, he puts the message inside us by putting people beside us. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith, or it's all, that word also can mean faithfulness. Faith is created in us by hearing the word or the message of Christ. The message of Christ. That phrase is so interesting. In the Greek, it's rematos Christu. Rematos Christu. It's the only time in all of Scripture it's used. The word or message of Christ it's not the normal phrase that would be used when it's talking about the scriptures or the Bible. It's talking about Christ's message, the good news, the gospel, right? That means that when you testify to me of what God is doing in your life, you're proclaiming the gospel, you're proclaiming good news, that rhema of Christ, and, and that builds my faith. Isn't that awesome? Right? When we get together in our home life groups or whatever, and we're, we're sharing what God is doing what, the ways he is moving in our life, even when we're sharing the struggles that he is sustaining us in, that builds our faith. It builds each other's faith. Amen. It helps us to become more like Christ when I'm hearing that. So divine relationships. The second thing is daily disciplines. Daily disciplines. This is another thing that God uses to help grow our faith. This includes those spiritual liturgies that we've talked about many times that each of us have to invest into our day. Uh, reading scripture 
praying with God on a daily basis, praying, worshiping Him, studying uh, Scripture with each other, getting together. We had a, a series earlier in the year called Conversations with God, a good series about prayer specifically. I encourage you to check that out. But this is another way that we are actually hearing that rhema message of Christ. Our faith is built when we hear that message, when we do this, it builds our faith. But you notice you can't put off these liturgies uh, just till whenever you have some downtime, because you will never have downtime, right? Not now, not today. It'll never happen. You have to be intentional about it. You have to build them into the rhythm of your life. And this includes acts of service and ministry and volunteering and doing things like that. And when you do that, when you do that, it's so beautiful how God shows up in those times. When you're reading the word, when you're praying, when you're serving others, God shows up and speaks to us. And he shows us the reality of his love for others and for us. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's so much we could say about that, but we'll move on. Number three. Difficult circumstances. God uses difficult circumstances to grow our faith. Remember what James said earlier in in James 1? He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, uh, when you face trials of any kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But look at how he finishes the thought. Let's read verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not, you can go to the next slide, mature and complete, not lacking anything. Mature and complete. That's what we're after here, isn't it? We're talking about growth, spiritual maturity. That's, now, God doesn't send the storms into your life. I don't believe that. I don't believe he sends the storms, but he will sure use them to get your attention. Amen? God doesn't send the storms He doesn't say, here, hold on to me. I'm going to whack you. No, no, that's not God. But with God, nothing is wasted. And that is a beautiful truth. Whatever you're going through right now, this is not wasted time. He doesn't waste any moment. He knows that we are never more open to his leading or more focused in our prayers as when we're experiencing trouble. And, and I can say, without a doubt, definitely just to be open with you, all of my major paradigm-shifting seasons of growth in my life have been in times of trouble. After times, going through those things, those stormy seasons, you have a choice in those moments. It can either make you bitter or better. And that's your choice. To how, is God, how do I going to let God use me in this? And then the fourth thing, next slide, that God uses is doctrinal teaching. And that's what we're doing right here. We're doing some teaching here. And I purposefully put this last because this is the one we actually most commonly think of when we talk about ways that God grows our faith. We think about this, but we cannot depend on this alone to grow our faith. I hope you're listening. A good sermon may have you shouting, may give you goosebumps, but it will not sustain you after you walk out the door. In fact, I would make the bold claim right now that one of the most dangerous things we can do is sit through a good sermon. It's, that's a dangerous thing because it can lead you to a false belief that you have just been effectively discipled and that your work is done. To get to know God better so you can trust him more, 
You have to invest yourself in those, those uh, relationships with other believers. You have to invest yourself in those personal, private disciplines of, of prayer and study and ministry. And you have to put your faith in action by depending on him in those times of trouble, those first three things. That is where warriors are born and disciples are made right then. And that is when then you come into here and you hear the teaching and it becomes this life-giving revelation to you. It's not just a lecture that wastes both of our times. Amen? Amen. Amen. Next slide. Um, my, my prayer is that every single one of you, as you're building your house, you're living your life, that you will dig down deep and connect in real relationship with Christ. That's what I want for you. That you will grow in intimate knowledge of who God is and to know that he loves you and he has your back. I love this church and I care infinitely more about growing your faith than growing our numbers. Amen. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. But I care about you growing your faith. And when the storms hit, which they will, you can know that God is not shaken. Right. He has not been surprised. Some of you in this room are carrying around shrapnel, I know right now, from storms you've been through, storms you're going through right at this moment. And maybe life has, has crashed on your doorstep more than once. Maybe you're a little gun shy. You might be sitting here and feeling a little skeptical whether God really is good. Is he good? Does he really love me? Is he, is he really worthy of my trust? And I would just urge you, to dive in, get to know him better so you can trust him more. No matter what has happened, God has been with you the whole time. He has been there. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears and your tears and he can, all your questions because he is unshakable. And he knows how to guide you through any trouble to the next right step. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.